uh, Texas Chainsaw, Dawn of the Dead, The Hills Have Eyes, Amityville Horror, uh, Last House on the Left, Friday the 13th, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, My Bloody Valentine, When a Stranger Calls Prom Night, Black Christmas, House of Wax, The Fog, uh, Piranha. It's one of those, right? Right? Hello, everyone, and thanks again for tuning in to the Pod and the Pendulum podcast. So we are a horror movie podcast dedicated to dissecting every franchise in every horror movie, one installment in one episode at a time. So that means we get to spill our digital love letters to things like Friday the 13th and the Halloweens of the world, while also getting down in the muck with a direct-to-video fair like Ghoulies and Witchboard, which, to be honest, do have their own unique charms, and we're going to dig deep to try to find them. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and I'm once again joined by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we feeling tonight? I am doing great. So excited for this episode. I am too. I love this movie, um, and I think I've come around on loving it fairly late in the game. And one of the reasons I'm really excited tonight is our other co-host that we have coming on. She might be the only person who's about as ride or die about how good Rob Zombie's H2 is as I am. Um, <laughs> I, I really believe that. <laughs> she will passionately defend the movie we're going to talk about tonight to the point where if you don't like it, she actually might cut you. Um, tonight we have Heather, Wix, uh, Heather Wixon, the managing editor of DailyDead.com, one of the co-hosts of the Corpse Club podcast with just celebrated their 100th episode with a three-hour extravaganza, which is really fun listen, by the way. Everyone should go and definitely check that out after this. Um, and she's also the author of the book Monster Squad, which is a really exhaustive deep dive into like 20 different special effects artists and makeup artists, um, how they came about falling in love with monsters, what they you know brought to the genre, their kind of secrets. It's a really fun read. Heather, welcome aboard. Thank you guys so much. I, I, it's when you said extravaganza, I was like, boy, we certainly put the extra in extravaganza certainly for that did. episode. <laughs> but no, thank you so much. I mean, there's, there are, there are several hills I will always die on when it comes to horror movies, and Scream Four has been probably the most prominent one for me since 2011 um, mm-hmm. because I was a day one fan and I saw so many people turn their nose up at it and it made me so sad. So it makes me really happy now because, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty to see so many people coming around to it. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And it's been a long fight, but it's been a good fight. Well, I'm hoping that this is going to be one other, you know, kind of notch on that, getting people to maybe go back and re-examine it and look at it. Because um, my co-host, Jerry, tell us every, you know, your love-hate relationship with this franchise, and in particular, Scream 4. Well, what's weird is, you know, Heather mentions being a day one fan, and you said that, you know, you're fairly new to coming around to that movie. I think I'm maybe like 48 hours into it. Like, okay. Wow. Yeah, no, like... I've I've really had to take a, a step back and like reevaluate my feelings on a lot of these movies since starting this podcast. And I think there is somewhat of a new appreciation for a lot of ones that I, you know, maybe right from the beginning, I just wasn't into. Uh, it's still not my favorite franchise. In fact, very far from it. But mm-hmm. I have found a, a good amount of things that I appreciate about it. And I think out of all the other sequels, uh, I think after taking the time to reevaluate it, I think Scream 4 might be my favorite one. You know what I think it is with the Scream movies? I think that they get – it's guilt by association. Like I think the Scream movies are fairly great on their own. 
but they brought about some not so great things in horror for a little while, and they kind of get guilt by association at that point. Oh, totally. Well, I, I agree. Yeah, I was going to say also it doesn't help that the Weinsteins are behind it. Yes, it does not help. So, I mean, that always I, I always cringe when I see that. Um, but for me, it's it's interesting because, you know, as we talk about these things, it, it makes me realize, especially when I'm doing reviews for current movies and stuff, because I really I try to take a moment now because I used to be very reactionary and I used to work for a site where it was like if you didn't have your review up like that night, like, oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're so we're so knee jerk when it comes to new movies these days where we're not the first to talk about it online or this or that. Um, and you really see like that people, it's not a good thing I think for film criticism, because I think to really appreciate art, whether it's horror movies or whatever it is, like you need time. I think I really feel like you need to take that moment and appreciate what a story is doing beyond just sort of that very quick reactionary thing. Like I just saw, I think it was Nate, uh, or Nat Bremer, like, was talking about the Fangoria's Guide to Horror from the 80s. Yeah. And it was like they were pouring all this love all over, like, old Hammer movies and everything, and they were saying some really, like, very almost confrontational things about, like, Hellraiser and, and all these movies that have become beloved over the years. And I think, for me, that's something I really saw with, like, Scream 4, um, is that I knew I knew when this movie came out I knew it wasn't going to be for everybody, but I knew it was a movie much like a lot of Wes's movies that was going to be very much ahead of its time and very prescient and tapping into things that I don't think people were ready for at that point. And now if you were to release Scream 4, everybody would be like, wow, this is so timely and blah, blah, blah. I mean, some of the tech's a little dated, but I, I, I just, for me, like, I, I really try to take a moment before I, you know, and there's movies I don't love before I crap all over them because I don't it's so easy to get caught up that I think a lot of people don't take that moment to just let movies or stories or books or whatever it is, just breathe a little bit. Oh no, definitely. Uh, and early on in my writing career, uh, Scott Weinberg said something that really just resonated with me when it comes to like, uh, being a critic. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the term film critic comes from critique and not criticize. You know, uh, I think a lot of times people see movies and they're so quick to jump on just what doesn't work or what does work in a way that it comes off really confrontational and cruel and mean spirited. Whereas you could like having to do this with the screen films, I'm still not a fan. But at the same time, I it was really great to evaluate it with a a fresh set of eyes and find appreciation for things that, that did work. I think, too, what happens a lot of times with criticism, especially nowadays, is we live in such a hot take culture that a lot of times we see a not so great critic maybe try to put themselves over the movie and they talk less about, you know, what went into the film and more about their experience with it. And they try to, you know, make themselves the center of the story as opposed to the, the movie itself. And I think we kind of live in that kind of culture at this point where it can be difficult to look at the art for what it is. And it's more about what is this going to do for me at the way I write about it? Damn you. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen so many reviews also that kind of just, it's all like really funny quips and like like little things you would see basically like, you know, for trailers and stuff like that. And there's no real meat to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it makes me a little sad. And it, it's, you know, and it's like sometimes if I'm trying to get three reviews out when I'm at a festival, like I get it. You're trying to talk, you know, trying to get your job done quick because you got to keep moving on. But I think that's where 
things start to falter a little bit. You know what I sure. mean? Like, and I, I love the fact that you use the term putting, you know, yourself over because that totally reminds me of like wrestling. Like when you have like an old timer whose job is to go out there and like put the new thing over and they're like, nope, I'm going to, you know, I'm taking the spotlight. To me, it's, it's a similar idea. Um, but yeah, I've, for me, the Scream series, um, I mean, I've, I've like, I still can't even really talk about Wes without tearing up a little bit because I'm just, it's still, hurts my heart that he's gone. Um, and I mean, I think for me, the nightmare series was my childhood mm-hmm. and the scream series came along at a time in my teenage years where I really needed something new. Um, and I think for me, and I know no, most people don't agree, but it's for me, it's the most consistent franchise and I know people hate three and that's okay. I love it still, but I mean, that's the park, the power of Parker Posey. So, oh, so that's where we're going to come to. I, I think she's the worst thing about that movie. And um, and Heather, I love that we're both we're both able to talk like the carny lingo of wrestling. We can both like, you know, throw the carny bullshit terms around, which I love. I think that's going to be awesome. But I just can whatever Parker Posey is doing in three, like it just, um, ugh, it just sets my teeth on edge. Oh my god, I think it's <laughs> genius, though. Oh my god, when her and Gail have to go and go into the archives and stuff. I mean, it's so fantastic. And, and they're wearing matching Carrie, outfits. Of course. And you have Carrie Fisher because that's what Parker Posey would do in her mind. If the killer wants to kill Gail, but you know, wants to kill her, but thinks he wants to kill Gail. Like, of course she's going to dress like Gail because like maybe the killer will get confused in that brief moment and maybe she'll kill Gail instead of her. So it's, it's, it's weird and it's, it's quirky and I know it doesn't work for everybody, um, but I love it. And plus we get really fun Carrie Fisher scene. Um, too. And I think also there was, I forget what the movie is, but there was a movie that came out shortly after Scream 3 that also had Lance Henriksen where he was like this really corrupt studio head. And I'm always like, boy, you guys really took some notes from Scream 3. Was it um, one of the Hellraiser movies or was that when he was a gamer? No, I totally, bl- it was like an indie horror movie and I'm totally blanking on the name. And I covered it when I first started writing about horror. Um, it was like the final something or other. And I'm trying to think there was like this really... Oh God, I'm totally blanking. Um, Did it have any other like kind of horror staples in that movie? Because I think I know what you're talking about. Oh, it did, and it was like it was sort of like a noir kind of yeah, Black Dahlia thing. And I'm trying to remember. There was this blonde actress who was really funny. I actually interviewed her for it, and she was really funny. And she's done comedies too. And I am totally blanking because this is what like 11 years later does to a brain. Um, but boy, like, cause I saw that, I was like, wow, you guys just like made your own screen three in a way. Um, cause it was about like an actress who gets caught up in the system and bad things happen. And her, her ghost basically is haunting the production. Interesting. Yeah. So I was like, wow. And you guys got Lance Henriksen for it too, which I was like, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know screen three is my least favorite out of the series, but I still love it. Um, I still and- think it, it has fun with movie making, which to me is like cinematic catnip. Right. I'm on the like it side of things. I don't despise the movie, although like, there's a lot to poke fun at with it. Um, but yeah, Parker Posey was my least favorite thing with it. I, you know, it's really funny when we started this, you know, when Jerry and I started talking about doing this um, podcast, I'm like, I had this idea and he's Jerry's like, I'm on board. Let's do it. That's great. And I was really excited because I wanted to do this for a year. I'm like, I just want to start with the scream movies. though. he's like, yeah, I really don't like those movies too much, but <laughs> it's been fun to kind of go back and revisit in that way. So yeah, he's got to rip that band aid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's why we we kind of settled on uh, Friday the Thirteenth as the second one yes. because I mean that's that's a series that I mean is 
the love of my life pretty mm-hmm. much as far as movies. So it's okay. I'll take Scream if we could do Friday the 13th. Eventually. There you go. So Heather, tell me about what it was about the Scream franchise that drew you into it. Like, why are you such a fan of this series? What calls to you as a horror fan? I think for me, you know, especially with the first Scream, you know, having that come out a few years after New Nightmare, um, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. And then it just kind of like made little ripples, but didn't really do anything. And I felt like, wow, people are really sleeping on this genius idea of Wes kind of pulling back the layers on what the horror genre has to say anymore um, and what it's trying to do and what makes things scary and what, you know, the concept of evil is and that kind of stuff. So for me, when Scream came along, like I was, I was joking um, with my boyfriend a few days ago because we were talking about the Scream movies. And I was like, I actually moved my finals uh, when I was in college to go get home in time to see Scream on Friday night. Because I had a final Friday morning and I was like, well, I don't want to do that because then I still have to come back and pack and everything. So I moved my final from Friday to Thursday just so I could get home because I didn't want to miss the new West movie. And I didn't know anything about it. I, the only thing I knew about it was that Nev was in it and I was a huge Party of Five fan. Mm-hmm. I knew that Drew Barrymore was in it and who doesn't love Drew Barrymore. And that was it. Like, that's all I really knew about it. Um, and I remember going and seeing it that Friday night and it totally blew my mind because there was just nothing like it. At the time, and you know, with the '90s, I love the '90s for horror, but I do know that there's some rough patches during that era. Um, but for me, it completely revitalized everything that I loved about the genre, but wasn't afraid to have fun with it too. And I remember, like, I went back, I went and saw it three times that weekend. And I remember, like, I took my mom on Sunday, and my mom had been like, when I was a kid, always took me to horror movies, and I was like, oh, she's gonna love this, and blah blah blah, and I had never made such a bit worse judgment call in my life really because I guess because her watching teenagers run around trying to kill other teenagers for some reason and then teenagers having sex and I was like in a steady relationship at that point with my Mm -hmm. eventual ex-husband but like Mm -hmm. I just I was like I could just see her face just like crinkling up every time and I was like "Uh uh-oh and like we like the movie finally finished and I looked I'm like so what'd you think she's like I hated it and I was like oh no um but I will give it to her some credit when I visited her house probably like in 2013 or so she was very nice because usually I have to watch like you know the mom stuff on tv when you're you're visiting home and scream four happened to be on cable at that point and she actually put it on and she's like I know you like these things and I was like oh well thank you (laughs) (laughs) so what do you think changed in your mom overall does she still enjoy horror or was that just something you think she did to form like a bond with you because she knew you loved it so she's like all right mom's gonna do this because it's you know um bonding time I don't know I think maybe it's just an age thing like it's interesting because like she grew up on dark shadows um so I remember like we would always watch like dark shadow repeats as a kid I didn't really have much that I wasn't allowed to watch either she pretty much let me rent whatever um there's only like two movies that were like the no-no movies which was Texas Chainsaw and Exorcist because she mm-hmm. was absolutely terrified by the Exorcist mm-hmm. um and so she's it's interesting because like I've gotten her to sort of like certain things if it's not just scared like I got her to watch Get Out Um, which was a pretty big step and she loved it. And she thought that was really good. She's like, although it got a little too, too much at the end. And I was like, I get it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's interesting because like the first movie that I remember seeing in a theater was American werewolf when I was three, like she took a three-year-old to go see American werewolf. That's a good mom. That's a fantastic mom. You know, when you're a single mom, babysitters are expensive. So, you know, you just, you got to hope. 
Um, but yeah, like I just, for me, like when I think about like what the screen movies have done, like over the years, um, in terms of for me as a fan, like it just gave me something new to kind of look forward to. Like the way as a kid, you looked forward to the nightmare movies coming out and the Friday the hmm. 13th coming out and to some degree, maybe some of the Hellraisers, <laughs> you know, um, good luck when you guys get to that one. Um, Ooh, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, gonna, that's gonna severely test the one oh, movie per Lord. episode. Yeah, rule you, might, you, you might have to roll a couple of, to each other yeah. there towards the end. You know what's funny? What's funny about your story about uh, going to see Scream with your mom? You know, and it backfiring. I had something similar happen to me, but it was like extravagantly bad. Uh, I was a huge P.T. Anderson fan right from the beginning. Like I saw a hard eight and I just thought it was one of the coolest things ever. So when I found out that he was coming out with a new movie, not having read anything on it, I talked to my mom into going to see it with me. And that was mm. Boogie Nights. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I have never to this day felt as uncomfortable as I was like sitting there watching Boogie Nights next to my mom. So, yeah, those those are always fun experiences. So, I, Heather, I agree. I think the thing about what I like about the Scream movies and what drew me in was, like, they did feel like events. I remember going to see the first one over and over again and bringing more and more people with me. And it was, like, the first time I was really excited about going to see a horror movie in theaters um, in years, I think. It had probably been years since something got me that maybe since, like, Silence of the Lambs that I got, like, that excited for a theatrical movie. Um, I remember, like, taking my sister to go see it, and the part where, right before Henry Winkler gets it, I, like, grabbed her, and she just screamed her head off, like, to the point where the theater, like, fell into hysterics because she got so freaked out before anything had happened, but... Um, isn't it just, isn't it just, like... Like, I hate to use this word because it sounds cheesy, but isn't it just like magical to come across horror films that you are you get that excited about again? You know, like really is having, you know, Heather, you've been at this for, you know, over a decade. So, I mean, I'm sure uh, I'm sure you feel the same that sometimes, you know, we see so many movies that it just kind of, you know, loses its effect. But I mean, it's so wonderful when movies come out that that we get that kind of youthful excitement about. I remember. I mean, man, I spent almost all of last year just being like a little kid waiting for Halloween. Mm -hmm. And it was yeah. it was such such a just, again, magical experience to sit there. And like I got teary eyed watching Halloween. Like it was everything that I grew up adoring about that franchise. And and I could only imagine, you know, Scream 4 coming around for like people that were fans of the first three, you know, after a good amount of time that had passed. It, it must have been like a really good excitement, too. Yeah, I, it, for me, it, it's interesting because I, I loved sort of the Halloween experience this year because the first time I got to see it, it was like half press, half fan screening, and mm -hmm. everybody was losing their minds, which was so much fun. Like, to see people, like, really genuinely excited was just awesome. And then the second time I got to see it was in Fantastic Fest, which that's already a loaded crowd as it is. Yeah. Um. So, but it was interesting because they, they, were, they were really into it, but it wasn't quite the same experience and then i remember we went and saw it uh that opening friday um we went and saw it again because i wanted to support it and there was actually families there which yeah. really surprised me because i was like guys this is this is like there's some stuff in this movie that i don't know if you're a six-year-old and it was fun because like i remember the la Llorona trailer came up and there was a family behind me and the little kids behind me were like oh la Llorona's gonna get you and it was really cute because i was like oh these kids are ready 
Um, and they, it was funny. They actually were better behaved. Like there was like three different families around us and all the kids were way better behaved than their parents. Um, but they were really into it. And like, everybody was clapping afterwards. And this was just at like my local Cinemark. And for me, like, I, you know, I'm very fortunate in what we, you know, what I do and what we all do is that we, you know, sometimes we get to go and get to go to press screenings and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And it's fun. And I like that. But I, for me, ultimately, I love that communal theater experience with fans. And I love, you know, that's for me, like, honestly, that's why I went to Endgame twice opening weekend, because I wanted to experience that with fans. Like, would I love to be on Disney's list? Of course, because that's cool. But for me, I don't like I don't want to see movies like that with critics. I want to see it with fans. I want to see it with people who are going to be reactionary because that to me is the thrill of it. Like I still remember seeing the descent in theaters and people losing their minds. Mm-hmm. The moment when that thing comes out of the, the, the puddle thing. And it was like, like one woman like screamed one woman like ran out of the theater, but it was also at other points in that theater. It was so quiet. You, if somebody dropped change on the floor, it would have echoed like it was happening all around us. So I think there's well, that's, something really special about it, you know? That's that's what makes, I, I think, the horror genre so great is that there is that communal experience. Uh, and, you know, it happens with other genres too, but it, it, it's something so cathartic to sit there in a theater with so many other people and experience the film. Like uh, my wife and I, I think we saw Hereditary maybe three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the first one, I remember sitting there and all these people were just a mess by the end of the movie. And it was kind of fun and kind of funny in a weird, demented way to like basically go to therapy with these like, you know, 40 or 50 people after seeing Hereditary. Yeah, there yeah. was a moment the second time I saw Hereditary, the moment where like Tony Collette is pressed up against the bedroom wall and you – don't really know she's there unless you're looking for her or happen to catch her. And I remember like the woman who was sitting next to me just like blurts out, Oh fuck. No, like really loud. Uh, and it was just great. I mean, it's like a tension, like a really tense moment and it definitely broke that tension in the best possible way. And I think that that's something you get from like a really good horror movie that no other genre can bring. Well, yeah. yeah, like even uh, Lords of Salem, I remember uh, my older brother and uh, like he has nothing in common with me. Like we're just the complete opposite kind of people. But he was like, hey, what are you doing today? I was like, oh, I'm going to drive uh, an hour to watch Lords of Salem because the closest theater was an hour away. I went there and there's that scene where Meg Foster is in the kitchen and you, you can barely see her. And my brother, like, he just screamed, like, oh, no, bro. Oh, no, bro. It was, just, it was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, I watched uh, Hereditary. It was interesting because the first time I saw it was at Sundance. Second time I saw it was, like, a private screening because I had to do interviews and I had to kind of get a refresher. Um, and the second interview was, like, at this hoity-toity screening room. And it was, like, celebrities and stuff were there. So it was, like, Eli Roth was there and Patton Oswald and stuff. And it was much more subdued. And there was a little more laughing than I liked. Um, but I'll tell you the Sundance screening because I was sitting with Sam Zimmerman um, and it was great because he's like he gets so into things. But there was a dude in front of us who pretty much was like perched on his seat after the head scene, like holding his knees to his chest. And then it was like, I forget what it was, but I think he finally hit the point when Gabriel Byrne, I mean, spoilers, if you haven't seen Hereditary at this point, there's nothing I can do to help you. But the point when Gabriel Byrne starts on fire, that dude jumped up and he's like, nope, and walked right out. He was <laughs> done. And I have never 
like tangibly seen somebody <laughs> so done with a movie than this guy sitting in front of us. And I was oh, like, I Oh my God. Story. Yeah. I so think that was me with the lake house. <laughs> so let's talk about the movie we came to chat about. Let's get oh, yeah. <laughs> talk about tonight. Um, so where, you know, one of the things like, I think Jerry, you mentioned this when we talked about scream three is like, it took a decade, you know, we're a decade or more removed away from the end of the uh, scream three to get this made. And that's probably a good thing because instead of spitting out a fourth movie, now you get to go back and look at where horror had been for over a decade in horror in 2011 looked a lot different from what it did in 2000. You had the rise of, and I don't necessarily like the phrase torture porn, but you had the rise of movies like Saw, Hostel, The Collector, movies of that ilk, which, you know, were a lot more, you know, not just violent, but they put violence in such a way where the person who was the, the victim of it was helpless. Like they didn't have a chance to run away. They didn't have a chance to fight back. They basically were going to sit there and have to take it, um, which is something that I've never really liked too much. But you also saw movies like Paranormal Activity hit in a really big way uh, and change the look of horror for the next five or six years. And you had, um, you know, Asian culture really have a huge effect on horror movies in the time frame like 2001 to maybe 2005 um, after. After Scream 3 had come out. So you had all of these new trends that had kind of come and had gone. And now Wes Craven is a decade removed from Scream 3, which probably was his last big hit movie uh, before Scream. He went behind the camera for Scream 4. And now he's basically going to make his final statement on the horror genre. Yeah, it's interesting. First of all, I don't know if you can hear me just shaking my head when you said torture porn, because that is my least favorite term mm-hmm. ever. Um, I've actually coined ultra gore because okay. I think it was, I, I think for me, because like I, because I just did something on Hostel too. Um, and I think for me, like I totally get what people are going for with the idea of torture porn. But for me, it was more that we were, we were kind of showing off the effects more so then we were sort of building characters and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which I get. So I think for me, like my, my go-to now has been ultra gore because I just think we were very much into shocking audiences with what we could do with gore and violence. Right. Um, so, but I was like, Oh, torture porn. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, when 2011 kind of rolled around, we were just at the beginning of sort of this onslaught of remakes like we we'd seen a few of them, you know, we saw them kind of coming through in 2007 through 2009 is really when they started to pick up. And I mean, Wes himself, you know, was producing his own remakes at this point. Um, so I think it's very interesting that, you know, in a way this is positioned as a remake or a prequel or a or, requel or, or whatever it is, but like our pre-make. Um, but it isn't because it is this continuation. And so it's for, interesting to me, like, how did that like as a director, like, you know, you can sort of, you know, say all the things you want to say, like John Carpenter will always say like, Oh, as long as I'm getting a check, what do I care? But deep down, like as an artist and as somebody who's toiled over these things, like it's gotta suck to basically see somebody go out there with your basically intellectual property and do it all over again. And Um, botch it. And botch it. Yeah. And you know, and so for me, like it was an interesting thing, I think for Wes, because at this point, like, He'd already been involved with remakes. You know, he's seen endless sequels to these things that he's done. So where, what does he have to say anymore? And I think it's almost interesting in a way that 
we all figured this was going to be the start to a new franchise. And these were going to be all these new kids that we were going to follow. And ultimately he kind of pulls the rug on us. I don't necessarily think it was completely the right call, but I do think, you know, for what a sort of hardcore screen fans were looking for, you know, you know, it's like, well, somebody from the original cast needed to die. I don't know who I would have wanted because I love me. I love Gail. I love Dewey and I love Sydney. Like, I don't know which one of those I would have chosen. You know, if I had to choose one of them to kill off, I don't know that I could have made that choice myself. And I think you're right. And I think he had gotten to the point where he had fallen in love with these characters because unlike other horror movies or slasher series, you have a returning, not just a returning character, but multiple returning characters that come back and you got to see their progression, got to know them and got to see them kind of like grow up, which is something you don't often get in horror movies. You don't really get to follow that overall. Um, I went really quick on that point. I just mm-hmm. want to say, has there ever been a horror director um, that has been so good to his female characters, like his main female characters as Wes? Because think about Heather Langenkamp in Nightmare. And then, because I, I know initially, you know, he's supposed to do three, bringing her back for three and then ultimately giving her the perfect swan song for New Nightmare. And then his, you know, obviously so in, invested in Sydney in this journey of this girl going from, you know, teenager who, you know, has to deal with trauma to basically then having her own trauma. Like, I just, you know, I sit there and I think about a lot of other directors and I don't know, like, I know we get Halloween 2018, but it feels a little different. Oh, no, it, it, it does. It does uh, in a lot of ways. And I think Wes was always just brilliant and very uh, giving with his female characters. I mean, like you said, with Heather, uh, I'm speaking to her next week for a retrospective on new nightmare. And I can't think of another example where it just feels so right. Uh, as it did when new nightmare came, like it was such a perfect swan song, like you said, for that character. And what's cool about scream four, uh, in my opinion, uh, in a lot of ways, and this might sound weird. It reminded me of Rocky Balboa mm. where you, you've mm. seen these characters, you've seen these characters throughout the years in the different movies and their, their growth and their journey and, you know, the good times and the bad times, you know, scream three, obviously. Uh, <laughs> and then he gives these characters that fans love like one last fight, you know? And yeah. I, I think it's, it was, it's really cool as, I mean, it was cool to revisit that and kind of notice that for the first time. Like there is, there is that kind of old dog battling, you know, the new stuff approach to it. I think what you see in Scream 4 and throughout the Scream movies is you see in Wes Craven a man who's very much at peace with his legacy. Like, he knows that he's created a number of, like, iconic films. Heather, to your point about have we ever seen someone kinder to their female leads in a horror movie, but when you go back and look at his early career, especially, like, Last House on the Left um, and The Hills Have Eyes, like, he could treat his characters in extremely brutal, cruel um, ways. And I think he was able to kind of work through that. And once he kind of had, like he calls last house on his left as like his anti-war movie. And like, once he got that, that out of his system, he was able to kind of return and more like, okay, now it's about building character and what do I want to see in a person? Um, well, I, I think, think he's, he's, I think he kind of became uh, more of a pacifist with yes. his age. Uh, a friend of mine worked on, uh, I think I mentioned this on the previous episode, a friend of mine mm-hmm. worked on the last house on the left remake uh, as far as developing. And he said that it was Craven. Uh, Wes was the one who kind of didn't want 
you know, the son in Last House and Left to die or didn't want Mary, the daughter, to die. Mm -hmm. Wes was the one pushing for, you know what, let's let these characters live. Let's let them go through hell and come out of it ahead. And I think over time, that kind of somewhat mean-spirited approach that he had with Last House on the Left and even Hills Have Eyes, I think he kind of grew out of that. And I think that's a really cool thing about him. Yeah. Well, also, if you look at what he's doing in Scream 4, um, too, because he's he's really taking on the emerging, you know, and I hate using this word because it's it's, you know, it's like three years removed from what I would be. But he's really taking on this sort of emerging millennial generation. And I, mm-hmm. I love in sort of a way where he's like, oh, I'm going to make a movie, you know, for the millennial generation. But he's like, you know what? You guys don't deserve it. So like the, it's like the old people get to li- live mm-hmm. and all the new kids are like they're, they're, you know, they're basically toast by the end of the movie. Right. Um, and I'd always kind of thought it was like, you know, this was supposed to be setting up all these new faces. And it was like, do they deserve it, though? I don't know. I mean, and I'm saying that as somebody who worships Emma Roberts. Um, and I would have definitely watched another movie with M. Roberts or especially Hayden Panettiere because mm-hmm. Kirby is everything in this movie. Um, but in some ways, it was almost like the the old guard's like, you know what? I think we're OK where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I almost kind of respect it in that way. One of the things I really like about Scream 4, especially when compared to my major criticism with Scream 3, with Scream 3, you were introduced to a bunch of characters that you didn't really care about. Like, you were introduced to them, they were killed off a scene later just because you see, you just needed to have a body count. Scream 4, I think, returns back to the original formula of Scream and even Scream 2, where you got to know the characters, you got to like them, they were fleshed out, they had personalities, they weren't these caricatures. Um, so when they were, you know, when they were killed off, like it really hit, it really hurt. Like um, Kirby getting killed was the, it was almost as affecting to me as Randy's death. Cause I loved the character of Kirby in this movie. I loved her agency um, in terms of like her pursuit of uh, Rory Culkin's character. I loved just how like self-assured she was and was able to do that in a way that didn't come off as like really like snooty or above it all. Like she was really down to earth and it sucked when her character was killed. Oh, well, I think that's a cold uh, way too. Like that yeah. was just man. I think that it's the combination of uh, good writing, but at the same time, I mean, just excellent casting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, Emma Roberts, she's such an underrated actress. I loved the black coach daughter. And uh, I mean, Rory Culkin, uh, you know, Jack goes home, Lords of chaos, like that, like the whole cast they're they're firing in all cylinders. They're really good. So we're going to do a quick, quick, quick synopsis of Scream 4 because, I, you know, we haven't really done this for the other movies, but because I don't think this one has been quite as widely seen as the first three overall, mm-hmm. I'll just do like a 30-second like TV guide overview of it where it's basically it's 10 years since the Woodsboro murders. Sydney is returning to her hometown for the first time in a long time. Basically, she's become a book promoting uh, – she's written a book, not become a book. She's not physically turned into a book, uh, but she's <laughs> written a book about her experiences uh, with Woodsboro and how she kind of came out of it. Um, Once she returns, um, there's a whole new crop of teenagers, and they are getting killed off one by one. Dewey and Gail are now kind of happily married. Dewey's the town sheriff. Gail has kind of retreated from the limelight a little bit, and she's really struggling with writer's block and kind of wants to get back in the game a bit. And once Sydney kind of returns, all of a sudden, Ghostface once again emerges. Man, I suck at synopsizing things, so. I'd watch it based on that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of heavy themes that are kind of going on here, you know, and I think for me that's why I sort of like this idea of what Gail is going through because I think, you know, being – first of all, anytime you have a writer in a movie, that's already like – I'm already in regardless of what they're doing, and I think that's why mm-hmm. I've always loved Gail um, because she was ambitious. She's always been ambitious, and she's at a point now where what does she have to say? You know, she's so far removed from these these things that happened in Woodsboro. You know, it's about her kind of figuring out who she is again. Um, It makes me a little sad because I know, you know, at that point, you know, David Arquette and Courtney were going basically getting ready to head towards, you know, becoming divorced. Mm -hmm. And I'd always really liked them as a couple. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always, you know, it's like I try not to get caught up in Hollywood stuff, but they were always kind of one of those couples where I was like, oh, that's kind of fun because he's super quirky and she's kind of super serious about things. And, you know, they kind of bring out the best of each other and you can feel a little bit of that tension, you know, kind of spilling over into the movie here. Um, And I think for me, like, I wish they had gone a different route for for Dewey and Gale because it cut so close to what was happening in reality. Yeah, there's um, almost an adversarial relationship between the characters in the movie, and partly because their roles are reversed for the first time, where Dewey is kind of elevated over Gale. Uh, and you see that in this movie, and they it's not really until that last scene where they actually share really any sort of tenderness between each other at all. And there's also the scene where it's like they almost have Gale, or not Gale, sorry, Sydney and Dewey, they're, they're kind of hinting like they might almost kiss at that moment. I was like, wait a second. Hmm. Like <laughs> it's when they're, when they're sitting in Kate's living room and they're talking mm-hmm. and they're having sort of those, those quiet moments. Like there's no moment in this movie between Dewey and Gail like that. Um, but Dewey and Sydney get it. And it's like, Oh, okay. And I was like, I, I swear to God, people, if you have Dewey cheat on Gail with Sydney right now, I, I might've walked out. <laughs> that would be weird. Yeah. That would <laughs> be a bridge too far. Well, yeah. do you think the kind of parallels between what was going on uh, behind the scenes? I mean, do you think that that was actively written into the script or was it just uh, a kind of unhappy accident? I don't know. It's hard to tell because I know this started off with Kevin Williamson. And then I know, you know, everybody's favorite Aaron Kruger came in um, <laughs> to do some changes of power dynamic where, you know, Dewey used to just have to sort of be responsible and now he has to really be responsible. Right. And that's a lot of pressure. Um, and, you know, we were okay. Like, Screed 2 is like, Dewey's kind of a little goofy in that movie. Um, so he can sort of let that sense of responsibility down a little bit. Um, so it, it's weird because he's, he's like the bona fide, quote unquote, grown up in this movie. Right. You mm-hmm. know, where he's, he's carrying the brunt of all of this on his shoulders, you know, as the sheriff. Um, but then you also have the weird stuff with them with Marley Shelton, like where she's flirting with him. I mean, I get it. I'd flirt with Dewey, but like mm-hmm. at the same time, like, you know, it does. It, I just feel like there was something missing with that dynamic with Ga- with Gail and Dewey specifically. Well, when the film was being developed, I mean, uh, you know, I remember it basically being announced almost like a new trilogy. You know, Wes was coming back. Kevin Williamson had a new idea for a trilogy and stuff. And you mentioned, you know, Aaron Kruger, which, I oh God, I feel so sorry for that guy. Uh, Aaron Kruger and then the other writer coming in to do their polishes on it. Uh, I mean, was that was that kind of thrown to the side, the whole idea of a trilogy? Was that like officially kind of tossed? 
I don't think it was thrown to the side. I think I'm going to link into the show notes. There's a version of this movie that essentially ends on a cliffhanger. And it uh, ends Emma... with, with Jill just getting carried out. Yes. Yep. And then it was going to lead into the next movie. Um, I'm not quite sure why Kevin Williamson was kind of given, like, shown the door and given a kind of a hard exit on the project. Um, but I know at one at one point when doing press for the movie, like, I think Wes Craven was very upfront saying, like, this movie's been kind of messed with a lot. And I he said he had trouble even calling it his own movie because yeah. there had been so much Weinstein interference by that point on it. I mean, at that point, we should have just been happy it actually got released. Right. I mean, with their track record. Um, yeah, it's it sucks because, you know, I think Kevin Williamson, you know, the stuff that he brought to the table with Scream 1 and 2, and I mean, he was pushed out of 3 as well. Um, so, you know, for him to kind of come back for 4 and then get pushed out again, it's like, okay. You and know, it's his baby. Um, which, Yeah, so I, that's why I was kind of glad he was involved at the beginning with the Scream TV series because mm-hmm. at least, you know, he could represent, you know, the things that, he knew he could bring to the table, like, as opposed to just kind of getting brushed to the side, mm-hmm. um, the way that he had been. Um, it's interesting cause I, that's, that's sort of my other issue with the movie is that it has that second ending that we don't really need. I mean, is it fun to, to watch Sydney go clear and use the shock paddles and kill, you know, Emma Roberts? Sure. But I would have been very much more interested in seeing, you know, where Jill would have gone from there. And the fact that we technically, didn't even see Kirby tech like die, die. Right. She gets stabbed. It's pretty painful. And she kind of drops out of frame. And I know there was something in her claws where she was like, I will not die on screen. Mm -hmm. So technically in my mind, Kirby still could have potentially lived. So I would have, I would have loved to see that dynamic of like, maybe Jill's living her new life and she's enjoying her new fame. And then Kirby shows up out of the blue because she doesn't know that she survived. And then it's like, Oh shit, game on. Right. You know, it's, well, it's interesting. Kirby wouldn't have known either. Like Kirby would not have known at that point that Jill, that Jill was in on it. No, so she would have just have thought it was, yeah, she just would have mm-hmm. thought it was Rory Culkin's character. I think too, one thing about the ending of Scream 4 is it does, that shows a bit of the cynicism that was around at this point in time as well. Like when I look back at the ending of Scream 3 for all the problems I think that I do have with the movie, the ending is not one of them. I no. really love that last kind of epilogue with Sydney kind of getting to go off into the sunset and the camera just shows her with a half smile on her face like, you know what, I've been through the ringer, but I've come out of it okay and I'm ready to move forward. The last shot of this movie is a is a close up of Jill's face as there's like voiceovers of all the reporters calling her a hero. It's like it's her dead face. She's covered in blood um, and everyone's like calling her a hero and like she's got her fame. She's got that, you know, what she wanted now, like her name is going to live on forever. But it, what did it cost her to get that? It's a really mean, nasty ending in a lot of ways. And it's a kind of the ending that, uh, you know, we ta- I mentioned Wes Craven having Hill, I'm sorry, um, Last House on the Left as his Vietnam protest movie. This is the kind of movie that really holds up a mirror to where we were in 2011 and really where we are in 2019 in terms yeah. of like what we'll do for fame and glory. Yeah, I honestly don't even think it was really reflective of where we were 2011 because YouTube stars really – they were starting to kind of make a ripple, but they weren't the way that they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, when you sort of talk about that prescience, like, 
you know, it's the perfect statement. Like Wes tried to warn us, like this is his warning. Like that, that we're so, you know, tied up in technology. We're so tied up in social media. We're so tied up in building these personas for ourselves. Like what is, what is that doing to our humanity? Like, what are we teaching future generations? Like, you know, my niece is going to be 14 this year and I'm, I'm, terrified for what this kid is going to have to go through right. over the next few years because I screwed up a lot as a teenager. Thank God nobody had phones with cameras on them because holy crap, our my life would have been ruined even more than it probably did get at times. You know what I mean? Like, so there's, it, it was basically West saying like, guys, this is where we're heading. Like you might want to think about this. And all of us were like, Nope, let's keep going. And here we are. Right. You know, we have things like the, the Jesse Smollett case in, in Chicago where You know, the story comes out before all of the facts. We just know these little bits of information and suddenly all of the media, all of us on social media, everybody was making these judgment calls. And Mm -hmm. then we find out two days later, we're like, oh, oops, we kind of screwed that up a little bit. You know, and it's again, it was like, wow, Wes showed us like he was like, hey, guys, this is where where we're headed. And we were all just kind of too dumb to take the warning, you know, and it's it's interesting because. He's always been a director who's been working a few years ahead of where we are in society, where we are in the genre. And I don't think he ever really got the credit for being this guy who, like, I don't understand how he could do these things, but he did. Well, he was more than a horror guy. He was able to use horror to tell just very smart, very intelligent, very layered stories that I think could resonate across a lot of different audiences. Well, there's there's just so much... Uh, in Scream 4 to to get on board with. And that's what I, I found myself very surprised that I was after revisiting it. Uh, I mean, there's even the idea of living in the shadow of someone else, you know? Uh, growing up, there was this huge case. I don't know if, if you guys remember it. Uh, Steven Steiner was the name of this kid that was kidnapped and abducted. He went years missing. Uh, he was kidnapped, molested, all this stuff. He eventually escaped, and they made a, a made-for-TV movie about it and all this stuff. Uh, his little brother, Kerry Steiner, was – I mean there was so much spotlight on his brother that his his younger brother kind of went crazy about it and ended up being a serial killer in, uh, wow. in real life over it. Like, I've and never the, heard I, Yeah, yeah. There was a, a movie with uh, Corin Nemec mm-hmm. called uh, – I think I Know My Name is Steven – I think that was the made for TV movie. And my aunt, my aunt Linda was. It sounds familiar. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, my aunt Linda was actually, uh, friends with him in school, the real guy, but that's what screen four kind of reminded me of, uh, Jill, you know, always living in the shadow of Sydney and what Sydney's went through. And that kind of led her to kind of, unfortunately take the wrong steps in trying to get her own spotlight. You want to hear like a crazy thing. Um, so in, in that vein of the, the real life stuff. So, I went to high school um, with, if you guys remember the case of Drew Peterson in Illinois, the guy who stuffed, uh, he killed his first wife and then yep. stuffed the second one in the uh, barrel. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I went to junior high and high school with Eric Peterson and his little brother. That's his kids from mm-hmm. his oh, first geez. marriage. Yes. Oh, and wow. Yeah. And here's the thing, like Eric wasn't the most likable kid in high school, but I had like a crush on him my freshman year of high school. Um, and we ended up like becoming friends. Actually, one day my car broke down outside of his house and he was really cool and helped me out. And I realized because he was this product of like this broken home, like I actually met his dad at one of the soccer games. Cause I was, you know, a puppy dog girl and I was going to all his soccer games mm-hmm. and shit. Um, so I actually met his dad once, which was crazy to me. And, um, 
so he was, but he was very prickly about things and he wasn't a kid that everybody liked, but he got along with some people well enough. Mm-hmm. But when everything happened with his dad, it was like all of a sudden, like, cause I was part of like my high school group or whatever it was, um, on Facebook and people were coming out in droves to basically hold Eric accountable for the crap that his dad had done. Yeah. Like vicious, vicious things. And I was like, hold on. Like, that is just crazy to me. Like this kid is not responsible for the stuff that his dad did. And it was even weirder is that I was actually, uh, when everything came out, Drew Peterson, I actually lived in the subdivision next to his in Bolingbrook. So mm-hmm. I came home that day and there was all these cop cars and I was like, what is going on? And my ex is like, Oh, uh, I think there's something happening next over there. And we actually went to high school. We both went to high school with Eric Mm-hmm. And he's like, I think that's Eric Peterson's dad. And sure enough, it was because they showed him that he had originally lived in Villa Park, which is where my high school was. So it was really crazy. But to see people turn on Eric, who wasn't even on social media at that point, so, like, just horrendously. I was like, wow. Like, I, I mean, I know the kid was kind of a jerk sometimes in high school, but, like. Who wasn't in high school at some exactly. point? Exactly. We were all way. a dick at some point. At some point, we all screwed up and we were the best version of ourselves that's what growing up is but yeah that was that was super well there's there's always been that kind of bullying uh to characters in films like that too i mean poor jamie lloyd i mean those those kids in halloween four were extremely cruel to her yeah i remember actually i was gonna say when i when scream four came out and there was somebody i can't remember who it was and if you're listening to this and this is your review i apologize but i remember there was a review that i read specifically calling out scream four um about uh Oh gosh, I'm totally bl- on, on Robbie's use of the camera in walking around. And why would you do that? It's so inconvenient. What kind of kid would stream their entire life? And I'm like, every Hello. fucking kid you know right now. Exactly. And I was like, that to them was like the most unrealistic part of the movie was that kids would want to stream themselves all the time because you'd get caught doing stupid things. I'm like, guess what? Kids are stupid. And they're going to do stupid things like streaming their entire lives. And I, so, again, if you're listening and that was your review, I'm sorry. Nope. But mm-hmm. turns out you were wrong. <laughs> right. Well, not even not even just kids. I mean, adults do that these days. Yeah. I mean, you go on Twitter or Facebook and there's people like every single facet of their life has to be broadcasted. It's it's weird. And I think Scream 4, I mean, there's so much about that movie that, w- that was ahead of its time. And Wes was always really good at kind of putting his finger at those things. Mm-hmm. I think he makes a point like we are all trying to make superficial connections now. Like it's not it's no longer about the quality of the connections you make with a person and how deep that friendship goes. But it's about having like quantity. Like uh, Jill says, I don't need friends. I need fans. And it's such a cynical statement, but it's so true. If we're doing these things, if we're being writers, if we're being podcast hosts, whatever it is that we're putting out there, what we're looking for is essentially a conversation with the people engaging with what we're doing. Exactly. And if you and if you don't take the moment to do that, like, what are you doing this for? Like, you know, I, I hate the way my voice sounds, so it's not because I like the sound of my own voice, you know? So it's like, you have to, you have to be conscientious of that stuff, I think. Um, and I think that's why, like, you look at, like, the group of, like, shockwaves, because, like, those guys genuinely will interact with the, the people who listen to them. And that's why they have such a strong community, you know? And what they don't, what a lot of people don't understand is those people taking the time out of their day to respond to people who like dig their work means a lot. Like 
I was such a huge fan of Icons of Fright from the beginning or, you know, uh, Shock Till You Drop, Fangoria, and all this stuff. And the reason I even got into it was because Rob Galuzzo took time out of his day when he worked at Amoeba just to talk to me, like, I don't know, almost a decade ago. You know, and it's 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 the fact that these people who do things that we want to do and that we're looking for a way in actually has the time to engage you. I mean, that that single-handedly, Rob Galuzzo or Ryan Turk, those people single-handedly, like, made it possible for me to do what I do now. And so if anyone ever contacts me and asks for advice or anything, I don't care what I'm doing. I'll drop what I'm doing just to respond. Yeah. And I think also, too, I think the part of it is, like, realistically, like, when we look at the things that we do online, whether it's podcasts, articles, reviews, whatever it is, like, none of us are curing cancer with what we're doing. So – I, if somebody listens to me doing this and rambling on about this or that, like if that inspires them to go and do the thing that they want to do with their life, that ultimately is the most important thing to me. Um, you know, and because I, it's just, you know, who the hell am I? Like, I'm, I'm just the same as anybody else sitting in a theater watching, you know, whatever horror movies coming out or whatever movie it is. Like I'm, I'm no different regardless of what, Mm -hmm. you know, online people might tell you we're all this we're all in this together um and i just think it's interesting because you know jill ends up taking the worst aspects of sort of an online presence and having sort of that persona and again it's west being like you know don't be this don't be you know i don't even know like is it jake paul i, I don't even know what those kids are yeah logan paul they're not good logan yeah paul. so and that's why but yeah, I one of the things my game. daughter, my daughter's eight years old, and she loves watching, you know, YouTube videos. And there's like a few personalities she likes. Like there's like these Minecraft people she really likes, like Pat and Jen, which I find like super loud and annoying, but they're you know fairly innocuous. But you know, some of the ones that you know she started to watch, like we actually had to put a curb to it because it was like they were just like really mean spirited, and a lot of the stuff they were, and you could tell like. We would actually remove YouTube from like our Roku for a couple weeks if it got to the point where you're like, look, you're just you're taking this on right now. Like you're becoming really rude and like this is not who you are usually. Um, So it just becomes this like really it just develops more and more cruelty and more and more viciousness and just kind of like more and more like it's just unseemly. Um, But and again, that's like the big problem is like, you know, our culture is slowly losing Empathy. Empathy, you know? And to me, that wasn't how I was raised. And, no, I, you know, maybe I had to, uh, sucker, but I had to put a password on YouTube in my house for my kids because they were getting way too in that kind of YouTube mentality yep. of, you know, Dan TDM or, or Jake and Logan Paul mm-hmm. or some dude chopping fruit with a sword. Like that, <laughs> that was Wait, just which, becoming, where, where's the, where can I find a dude chopping fruit with a sword? I want to watch I, that guy. I think it's, Oh man, I can't, I can't remember the name, but he buys, uh, he buys weapons from films and video games, like, uh, you know, mortal Kombat weapons. And then he just chops fruit, uh, <laughs> which it sounds innocent. It sounds innocent until your kids are trying to chop, all your fruit, you know? <laughs> I think one of the brilliant casting decisions of this movie is Emma Roberts and Rory Culkin are your, um, 
main villains because it's a movie where your villains are upset that they are being overshadowed by more famous members of their family. And you have the younger brother to the kid who started home alone. And you have the niece to uh, one of the most famous, most beloved actresses in the world. And maybe that's just a happy accident, but it doesn't quite seem like it would be. I think that's a really kind of brilliant bit of meta casting that's done right there. And I love Rory um, Culkin. Like I love Lords of Chaos. That was oh one of the God, highlights right? for us at Telluride Horror last year. Like that kid, he was great in Castle Rock. He's brilliant in Lords of Chaos. Like the kid's got it. But this would have, have been have my seen, introduction uh, to him. Have you seen Jack Goes Home? No. Oh man, I could not recommend that movie enough. Uh, I, it, it was a little, it was a little difficult to watch, just mm-hmm. because I mean, there's similarities to like my childhood. Is a lot of PTSD stuff in there, but it's uh, Thomas Decker, the actor. Uh, it's his first, uh, I think, first film he directed, and uh, Rory's in it, and it's just superb, very good. Jotting that one down. Yeah, speaking back to the 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 role of Jill, it was actually she wasn't actually signed on. The she wasn't the first one to sign on. Okay. Uh, it was actually supposed to go to Ashley Green, the chick from the Twilight movies. Mm-hmm. Oh um, and she was she was in some lame possession movie. I had to do a set visit for her, and she spent the whole time fussing with her socks. But she was still pretty cool. <laughs> but but like so she was actually supposed to be the original Jill. Um, and I don't know if something happened. They had a lot of casting changes on that movie in particular, because I remember I got really excited when Lauren Graham was supposed to be on. Um, and then she bowed out like three days into production. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of those weird things where I was like it, the cast always kind of kept re- evolving a little bit. But I do mm-hmm. think um, having Jill in there coming off of stuff like the Nancy Drew movies, which I knew from babysitting and stuff like that, um, and having her come out and just be, you know, this super awful teenager um, who's very spoiled and very self-centered, like it was a complete 180 um, and now we kind of, you know, obviously with Scream Queens, you know, we've seen it sort of exacerbated a bit. Like, I'd almost like to see her go back and play like a nice girl role mm-hmm. just to mix it up a little bit. But, you know, bitchy Emma Roberts is, is the best. Um, and I and I'm, for me, I've always I, I think Rory's the best Culkin. No offense, Macaulay. Um, but I, I've oh, always I, really, I agree. really loved yeah. Love Rory. I actually wanted to talk about, I put this in my notes here. There are a lot of really fun parallels to Scream 1. Yes. In this movie, uh, starting with like the opening kill, like the actual opening kill, it's the first movie uh, since the first one where you have like teenage victims that are home alone getting ready to sit down and watch horror movies together, which I thought was a really nice nod to the opening movie. What did we think? How do you, how do you think this kind of like opening within an opening within an opening kind of measures up compared to what we had seen before? Love it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, for me, it works because, you know, after one and two, you know, because one, you obviously you set the, you know, you do the psycho with Drew Barrymore Two, you know, you put it in a movie theater and it's completely over the top and really, you know, just startling because especially now when you think about, you know, sometimes we don't feel so safe at movie theaters anymore. Um, three. I still get really sad because I love Cotton and I would have liked to explore that character and the fact that he played stab games more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's shocking in its own way, um, especially because of sort of the uh, for me, just the L.A. Uh, geography of the scene where I'm like, how does this match up? But that's my own little quip. Mm-hmm. Um, but so for four, like, you, what are you going to do that's going to top what you've already done? You know, and I like the idea of sort of the opening within an opening because I did not see it coming. The first time, 
you know, especially once I saw Kristen Bell and um, Anna Paquin. Anna Paquin, because, mm-hmm. you know, they had been announced as cast members. And I was like, cool, all right. And I sort of thought maybe they were coming in to sort of play older characters in the story. Like, I had no idea. And then I was like, oh, man, Kristen Bell, like, stabbing people now. Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. But, you know, so for me, it totally works. I think, too, like those are the scenes where like Wes Craven's really pointed critique of modern horror really shown through. Like that's when he kind of takes his dig at the Saw movies and that kind of the lack of character development at the, you know, having kind of what you would call like extreme gore at the expense of character development um, or that overly critical, you know, blogger or horror fan where nothing ever satisfies them. And they're like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. The death of horror. Like, I think they use the phrase, the death of horror, like right in front of our eyes, like that person who nothing modern will ever be um, good enough. I really kind of like that about the opening. I, I almost wish that the opening would have reflected a little bit more of sort of the subplot of Jenny and, um, oh my gosh, Trevor and Jill. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, if you sort of put the tiny little breadcrumbs together, it's obvious that Trevor cheated on Jill with Jenny Randall. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sort of lose that, like, dynamic a little bit, which, you know, very much waters down the character of Trevor. But, boy, he he pays for it in the end. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you talk about sort of the nods, I think for me my favorite thing is the ending of Scream 4 because, obviously, it takes place in a house much like, you know, it's Stu Mockler's. But, like, also... Mm-hmm the color coding of all the characters, because I mean, it's literally right in front of our faces when you look at it, because they're all color coded the way that the characters were color coded at the end of the original screen. Well, I think Trevor is actually wearing what looks like the same outfit as Sydney's dad when he's trundled out of the closet and duct taped, like it's identical jacket and turquoise shirt and brown pants. And, you know, you have Rory being, um, the, the stew with the, with the sort of the taupe color, And, um, oh gosh, that poor kid, Robbie, you know, wearing the, mm-hmm. ran- the Randy green, like it was brilliant. And it, it you know, it finally, like, I, I always noticed the Nico Tortello moment. Um, but it wasn't until like, I really, you know, once I came to Blu-ray and I've spent so many times, I've watched these movies a lot. Um, mm-hmm. and I realized I was like, oh my God, that is so genius. Well, do you think, Uh-oh. do you think any of it, uh, do you think any of it had to do with, Scream 3, uh, to a lot of people, not really feeling like the same movie as the first two. Like, yes. it was very, it's very oh, yeah. cartoony and that stuff. Whereas Scream 4, it feels like it's such a return to form. Uh, return to form as far as the tone, the brutality, the cynicism, you know, the the statements about the state of horror. Uh, it, it feels like it was such a step in the right direction after what a lot of people consider a misfire with the third film. Yeah, I mean, the third one is very much their Scooby-Doo movie, um, but I'm okay with that. I actually think the whole series is kind of like Scooby-Doo for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's always been, like, in the back of my head. I love murder mysteries, so for me, it was just, like, a really, you know, violent version of Scooby-Doo. Because uh, you're going to unmask your killer, and you've got teens trying to solve this crime. No talking dog, but that's okay. Um, so for me, like, three very much leaned into the Scooby-Doo-ness of it, which, again, is why I don't mind the stuff with Parker Posey a little bit. Um, but Scream 4 very much went right back to basics. Like, we just needed that, to set uh, up the mystery, get those teens in an isolated place, and then go to town. Well, that and the reveal in 4, uh, I, I feel like there's such a better payoff in 4 than 3 and even 2. 
uh, we, we just in the episode of uh, Scream 2, we discussed kind of the, the film itself being really solid. And then at the end, you're like, oh, you're the killers. Whereas four, when when it's revealed, it's actually satisfying in a lot of ways. What what really hit me with the reveal in four is with Charlie and Jill. They've just gone through and butchered their whole lot of friends. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we talked, I think, Jerry, you and I were had a little bit of a different opinion about the first movie where you couldn't really see that group hanging out together. And I could. But this group, like you really I was really sold on the friendships in this movie. And that really it hit home. So when. Charlie and Jill actually expose themselves as the killer. It's like that level of coldness that you would do that to people that you profess to be very close to, like was to me, like a really chilling, satisfying reveal. Almost definitely. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. Cause I remember the first time seeing two and I was like, Oh, okay. This is the direction we're going with. Um, and then as an adult, I've, I've come to really love it. Um, especially, you know, cause it's, again, it's sort of this, hat tip to Hitchcock in a way. Um, three, three for me always kind of feels like the, the, the lesser of reveals because I think the wrong person's the killer in that movie. Um, would you have picked? oh, I would have picked uh detective Kincaid. No, it just, I mean, it was, yeah. it was just served up on a platter, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was on a platter there and it was like, it was ready. And then it was like, wait, really Scott Foley. Okay. I mean, sure. But like, okay. Um, cause especially like if this kid was like, you know, left behind by his mom who wanted to be an actress and now he's a, te- a detective working in Hollywood, like that makes like, that's a perfect segue, like to become a filmmaker in Hollywood after your mom was a failed actress, like, boy, those stars really have to align perfectly, mm-hmm. like in a, in a very, very like existential way for him to be able to then eventually come on to be a director for a stab movie. Like yeah. that to me seemed a little far fetched. I mean, it's still fun, and I still, you know, I still, I think they're the fight between him and Sydney is one of my favorite moments because they they really go at each other, uh, and it's very physical. Um, so you really kind of see Nev basically just throwing everything she has at like bas- you know her assailant for whatever you know whatever right. movie like this. It's it's a really good moment I think for her character. Well, I think they reshot that too because like if you the original ending, I think the feeling they had when they first shot it was she got away too easy like he really didn't pose any sort of threat so they actually went back and re-added about six or seven minutes to it um, just to make it a lot more punishing for her because they figure it's the last movie they wanted to make it feel like she could actually die yeah which is good and i think for me for four um i had suspected jill was in on it Basically, because we lose her as soon as she goes under the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so immediately I was like, oh, I was like, this is this is where it's going to come. But I didn't know, like, what the context would be. Um, and I didn't I didn't really see the Rory Culkin thing happening, you know, especially before the whole Hayden Panettiere. So like mm-hmm. that really that scene for me ends up making this movie like so much greater than a lot of people give a credit for. Because like to me, like to take that that thing where, you know, we have, you know, Cece or Casey Becker and Steve, you know, or like, you know, in the opening of scream one, where she has to answer questions and she loses to then having Hayden Pantera being like, uh, uh-uh, bitch, I'm coming in and I know right. this stuff and she wins, but ultimately she still loses. Like, holy crap. Like to me, that like ends up making this movie, like what I think is, you know, one of the best sequels. Mm-hmm. 
like that we've seen. And I do think for me, like, you know, we talk about the 2000s for horror and we, you know, in 2011, we're into the 10s now. Um, and I really feel like Scream 4 was a movie that was vital to sort of changing some things, even though, you know, it didn't quite get the respect that it does, you know, deserves, you know, things sort of shifted a little bit when it came to slasher movies after Scream 4. Mm -hmm. um, I think they realized they had to work a little bit harder, you know, that they couldn't just do the typical, you know, formula we'd been seeing time and time again. Um, but yeah, when you think about like where horror was in like from 2003 to like 2009, it, it was wasn't punishing. It, it was, wasn't pretty. It was punishing. And that's why you had said before, you don't like the phrase torture porn. The reason I'll defend it, and I think it's a matter of if I watch a slasher movie from the 80s, the victim at least has a chance to get away, even if they never do. The biggest issue I had, and I think Hostel and Hostel 2 are very good movies with a lot of good things to say. Um, but w the difficulty I have with them is that you have a victim that is very often restrained to the point where there is no, like a Wolf Creek, I think is another example of that, where there is no hope. Like you completely remove any sort of hope from the equation. And I think when I struggle with horror, I struggle with the loss of hope. That's the thing that really gets to me a lot and what I struggle with. Yeah, and it I has to it, be. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that was pretty much sort of reflective of where things were in society. Like everybody, you know, mm -hmm. says, oh, you know, you know, keep politics, keep society, you know, out of my movies or whatever. Um, nope. But that stuff always tends to spill into it because you see that, you know, there was sort of this hopelessness when we were, mm -hmm. you know, entrenched in, you know, all these wars overseas and stuff like that, you know, that didn't need to happen or whatever. Um, and I think, you know, this was something I said probably four or five years ago, but I, I remember saying on a podcast very early on when I started doing some stuff with F this movie. And I said to, to Patrick, I was like, I guarantee you in the next five years, horror is going to go way more internal. You're going to mm -hmm. see a lot more like family struggles. You're going to see a lot more contained stories and sure enough, look where we're at because now we're all struggling within the context of our own homes. Maybe not with the people we're living with, but we're all dealing with, you know, debt and having to, you know, pay our, you know, rents or, or mortgages or trying to make ends meet. Everything has gotten a little more internal Difficult. for us. Mm -hmm. our, our struggles are a little more, you know, inside of us in these realms that we're supposed to be able to contain. But now horror is telling us you can't. Um, so I think it's really interesting. Well, I think the whole era with the, you know, torture porn, which is a term that I can't stand either. I, I think where that went wrong with me, uh, I, I'm a big fan of the French extreme movement. I, mm -hmm. I think that those, those, um, the majority of the films had mm -hmm. specific messages and, you know, underlying themes. Whereas when it became popular and then American filmmakers started doing those films, I think a lot of the meaning was lost. Uh, whereas I, I watched the first hostile movie and I just I can't even get through it. It's just obnoxious frat boys, you know, and gore. Like it, it just has no meaning for me, you know. I think, Whereas I think two is uh, much better than one. Oh, most definitely. Yep. And I mean, you know, and I won't get too far into this, but I mean, it's a chore for me to sit through any Eli Roth film. But Hostel Two, like it's it's the one where it does feel kind of warranted. The violence feels warranted. Whereas the first film and a lot of the American you know, films that fall into that subgenre. I just, I can never get on board with them. 
again, like I, I think it's I am in the same boat where I love the extreme French movies like High Tension and Inside. I'm not as much a fan of Martyrs for the same reason. I don't like a lot of like the Saw movies, like that last act where there's just it's that loss of hope again that really kills me. Um, but I, I do think that. Heather, to your point, I think horror movies in the past five years have gotten a lot smarter. I think movies like Resolution, They Look Like People, The Battery, these are the spring, the endless. These are the movies I find myself returning to over and over again um, because I think they have a lot to say about where we are as a people right now, like the internal struggles we go through trying to make sense of a world that kind of like – threatens to swallow us whole at every given moment. I did not really expect to be talking about existential dread um, and trying to find a struggle through meeting in life uh, when talking about Scream 4, but hey, here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I love it. Well, I think there are parallels. I mean, yeah, it's Scream 4, but at the same time, Wes Craven always had that knack and that talent for making big statements within horror Uh and i think that that's when horror succeeds you know the most uh there's there's a film that i've been trying to champion as much as possible lately called starfish and it's it's more of a drama than a straight-up horror film but you know it uses monsters and so many other things as metaphors for grief for dealing with loss of a loved one for dealing with your own failures and i think that's when the genre really succeeds just for me is when you could find parallels to your life and you could find parallels to society and you know the political environment, everything within a, a horror film. And I think Scream 4, in my own personal opinion, I think it's the most solid as far as making statements and observations, you know, of, of what was going on at the time. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like, you know, again, and I'm, I'm somebody who enjoys Scream 3, but I think when you look at the Screams franchises, 1, 2, and 4 were the ones that really had something to say. Um, and I think that's why they are... Uh, as as enjoyed as, as much as they are in terms of, you know, the things that were going on. I think for me, again, three sort of that fun toss away Scooby-Doo, you know, it's it's not an essential. Like if I, if I had to tell somebody like, oh, if you have to watch only three of the screen movies, I'm going to go one, two, four, because that just makes sense. Um, Where's you know, the TV so show I, fall on that with you? Hmm? Where's, what is, uh, where in that ranking does the, the TV series fall with you? You know, I have to say, I believe me, I was the biggest skeptic going into the TV show. Um, and I was like, I I don't know how this is going to work. I don't like the idea of them not using Ghostface because, um, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. So I'm, I get precious over dumb things like that. Um, and I was really surprised at how good that show kept getting. Um, yeah. I really liked the first season. I thought the second season was even better. I think the fact that they were always bringing in horror directors to to work on episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even, oh my gosh, I can't even believe, um, I'm totally blanking on the editor that Wes always used that went on to become a, a, a director. Patrick Lucier? Yeah, yes, Patrick. like he even came in and did a couple episodes for Scream. Uh, and they ended up being some of the best for the TV series. Um, so I was very much surprised. But again, I think it does, it did what a, a successful quote unquote remake should do. Like it should adhere to certain aspects of what makes the originals so good, but it should find a way to bring something new to it. Um, and so losing Ghostface and just going with a different mass killer and a different 
type of killer and a different motivation for a killer um, really worked for me. And I, I like that they did a really fun uh, Halloween episode, which was like a little like 90 minute episode that they did. Yep. That was super fun. Um, I'm still waiting to figure out where the hell Scream season three is because I've been patiently waiting for like two and a half years now. And I don't know. Um, it blows my mind. I don't understand if you have a TV show that's already done, people are paid, it's finished. Why wouldn't you just if you're if you're gonna dump it, just dump it? Right. You yeah. know. So that kind of blows me away because um, I was really looking forward to seeing like what they were gonna do with a completely a complete revamp again. I mean, American Horror Story re you know reinvents itself every season. So you know if they want to go in and do a whole new mystery like every couple of seasons, that's cool. Um, but I was gonna miss those kids because I really started to to really enjoy right. that cast and the that the that uh an ensemble of uh, actors and actresses. I thought they were really fun. Well, I think that one of the things I like about the show is it makes its mission, its mission statement kind of late in the pilot where it, uh, there's the, I can't think of the character's name now, but kind of like the stand in for Randy in it when he's like, look, a typical slasher movie, you're in and you're out in about 90 minutes. But if you're going to do like, um, slasher in the long form, you have to really care about the characters. It's not just about who may or not be the killer and who may or not be killed, but you have to care about all the other little things going on in their lives that lead up to it. And I thought the show did a really good job of making you really care about the ins and outs of their lives overall. That's one of the things I thought worked really, really well um, within the show. I actually like that they didn't use the ghost face mask because that is so iconic. It, even though I don't think the outfit works quite as well, it allowed the show to kind of stand on its to own two feet. After a while, you kind of forget that you're watching a show that's inspired by the movie Scream, and it just gets to be its own thing within its own that's, universe. That's what I love so much about it. I remember when uh, season one first came out, I wrote an article for Blumhouse about how much I loved the first mm – -hmm. or loved the show – being that you know, even being that I wasn't a fan of the series at all, I think I made the stupid statement of uh, saying that the show was better than the film series, and suddenly everyone wanted my head. But uh, the show did what a. What is really it about you, Jerry, with your writing, where people are calling for your head? You well, are I such think a, a nice of it, dude. Well, <laughs> it's it's not it's not anyone you know that was at Blumhouse.com's fault, but I think I just had a problem with maybe wording specific things. Like I wrote when. Uh, when it chapter one was going to come out uh, a year or two ago, uh, I wrote an article about how everyone was being so precious with the original without giving the new one a fair shake before it was out. And for some reason, I can't remember what side I wrote it for, but for some reason, the editor at whatever site changed the, the, the heading to make it sound like Jerry's saying that the original it miniseries isn't good. And, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's funny. It's like, I always go through these, these, phases of the most hated dude for like a day. And then after that, everyone will forget. Like I'm, I'm still, I still have a PTSD from death wave, but, uh, but you know, back to scream, uh, the show, I think it was just so good. It did such an excellent job of standing on its own. The actors were so good. I mean, uh, Bex Taylor Klaus, I could watch her act in anything. I mean, Hellfest is one of my favorite movies mm -hmm. the last couple of years, but I, I, it also made me, take a step back and, and revisit the, the film series, even before, you know, we did this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think films can kind of grow on people with time. And I, I scream Four is one that I think, like I said earlier, uh, I think it's my, probably my favorite out of the whole series. 
Interesting. Interesting. So it, uh, it lands the most for you. So we're getting a little long in the tooth here. So I want to just say sure. one nitpick, but then one thing I really love about Scream 4 out of the blue. Mm-hmm. My nitpick is I think this is the same, like at the end when they're in the hospital, it's the same hospital from Halloween 2, isn't it? Because like no one seems to it work there. Yeah. There's like guns did, going wait, off. Wait, did they, did they, did, oh, okay, I get you. You're making it. Sorry, my sarcasm meter was a little off because I was like, wait, I thought they shot this in Michigan. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm a dumbass. Oh, my God. So that joke, anyone who's, that uh, joke anyone who's had like a kid, kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate it. I think anyone that has any kid would have that same kind of question that you have. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to a hospital and everyone's checking your bracelet every door you go right. through. People are so uptight, whereas films like Halloween 2 or Scream 4 – like, where the hell are the doctors? Like, like glasses are no, breaking, things are getting smashed. Like, like no have, one is, no one's even the popping their head system. in to check. They have the same security system that the hospital in Cobra had. <laughs> like, what's going on here? Uh, but one thing I do love, I love everything about the Stabathon. I love like a bunch of like rowdy kids getting together in a barn to watch horror movies, like shitty horror movies for 10 hours um, in an old barn. I think that is like the I would love a movie like a a dazed and confused style movie about just watching Stabathon over the course of a night. I would be all in on that. Uh, I mean, I can't say so much uh, too much about it because it's not out yet, but there is a movie coming that actually feels like Days to Confuse, which that just happens to have a murderer in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Boogeyman Pop. When it comes out, watch the hell out of that movie because it's exactly what you just said in the I most positive way. Jotting that one down as well right now because I would be all about that. I just love the whole the aesthetic of the barn like that set is just beautiful to me um just the idea that like these kids are in a town that's famous for like basically who would have been like their aunts and uncles getting stabbed and killed in brutal ways or like let's go celebrate this um i just think it is like everyone all dressed up like i just thought that was like my favorite you know five ten minute sequence in the whole movie yeah i think for me what what ultimately makes scream for the best or like one of the best sequels is the the whole Jill uh, like setting herself up mm-hmm. at the end where she's just going totally bananas on herself. Mm-hmm. So she's like jamming knives into her shoulder. I mean, seriously, the coffee table scene is like one of my very favorite things in horror ever. Oh, she's like, the Mick, she, she she's the Mick Foley of slasher killers. It's awesome. Like holy crap! Like I don't understand anybody who watches that moment and they're like, oh, this movie sucks. Like, come mm-hmm. on. Like, she is she is going for it there. And it's so great. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've had that that uh, coffee table scene uh, gift saved on my phone, I think, since 2014 when I first found it finally because uh, gifts weren't always readily available for every little thing, you know, mm-hmm. seven years ago or whatever. But, like, I just, it, for me, that mo- that moment sells all of it. Um, and I and I think that's why I've been pretty much ride or die for her since. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, guys, what do we think the legacy of the Scream series is as a whole? And in particular, how 
do you think we're going to look back? Because I think, Heather, you raised a point early on, like this seems like a film that's getting more appreciation now, uh, maybe in part because it's Wes Craven's final movie. And I think it's a great if you're going to go out, it's a great film to go out on. Um, But I do think that eventually it is going to get that kind of Halloween three level of respect. We're going to look back on it and go like, man, I think maybe a lot of people really missed the boat on this movie when it was out in theaters. It usually takes about 10 years for people to catch up on good movies mm-hmm. um, because I've, you know, again, for those, you know, cause I've been doing this for a while. So like when I saw Jennifer's body, I was like, holy shit, that's a great movie. Like it has so much to say. It's really smart. It's really clever. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? That was the stupidest thing ever. Now everybody loves Jennifer's body. And I think mm-hmm. you just perspective is everything. And I think we are about two years away from from the Scream Renaissance to come full bloom. Um, but I think in about two years, once it hits the 10th anniversary and people really sit down and watch this movie for what it is, that's when it's going to click. It's usually mm-hmm. a 10-year cycle because if you look at pretty much almost everything that Wes – or not Wes Craven, like John Carpenter did post-Halloween was kind of not – you know, wasn't favorably reviewed by most people – and then suddenly in the 90s, it was like, oh, this John Carpenter right. guy was kind of onto something, right. you know. And so I just think we're, we're about two years out and people are going to finally understand the greatness. But I mean, for yeah. me, it's always it's always been, you know, it's it's Wes's statement on society. You know, whether you look at Scream 1, Scream 2 or Scream 4, a little less Scream 3, um, it's always been his way of trying to tell people like you guys need to stop and think about what you're doing. Because the things that you're enjoying and the ways that you're acting, they have they have further implications and you can see where you're at now. Um, and I think for me, you know, Nightmare was almost sort of his statement on broken families in the 80s where Scream was sort of his statement on where, you know, the, the ills of society and where we were heading. Um, and he was right in both in both cases. It does take a certain amount of time for people to get on board with things. And I, I think people will eventually revisit films that they didn't care for and find something new. Uh, I mean, I, I could probably guarantee, you know, that the scream series will never be one of my favorites, but after talking about them and revisiting a lot of it, like, I think there is a good amount to get on board with the scream for. And I think it is one of Craven's, uh, more solid entries in, as far as films that actually have something really good to say. I mean, even he didn't direct it, but even the film he produced after Scream 4, uh, The Girl in the Photographs, it was such a good look on everyone's obsession with popularity, mm. you know, and the kind of Terry Richardson's of photographers. You know, it, it was just Craven was always so talented and unbelievably smart and such a kind person. Uh, you know, like a few months before he passed away, he sent my son Dexter uh, this care package of wonderful things for my son because my son has mm. autism and the horror community has always been really just spectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, Craven was always just a special person and you know, that outside of films and definitely within filmmaking, he, he had a lot to say. And I think a lot of people didn't appreciate that as much as they should have. And I do feel like within time, uh, in time, I think screen four will be one of the films that people will remember, uh, a lot more about, uh, as far as when Craven comes up. I think Craven brought like a very, intellectual but open approach to horror movies where they were very intelligent and very smart and he trusted his audience to 
bring that intelligence back. Like he knew that if he gave them something they wanted, they would put their thinking caps on. They would engage with it in a way that went a lot deeper than just saying, it's really cool to have this fantastic killer that's out there cutting co-eds up. Like there was just a much more intelligence to his film. And in his later work, there was a lot more warmth um, to his characters than you would find in a typical uh, low budget horror movie. Like he actually seemed to really care about the characters and he knew, I think he understood what these movies mean to so much of the audience overall and how much we identify with characters. So I think he kind of understood how much people were going to identify with Sydney, with Gail, with Dewey, and he wanted to respect his audience with the way he kind of shot and brought his movies to life. Most definitely. And he's a legend for that. I think mm-hmm. So, I guys, anything else to add to Scream 4? Or, can, Jerry, can we officially put the Scream series to bed at this point? I am all for that. I'm so happy to have revisited all of them, and mm-hmm. I'm even even more excited about the next series. Oh, I can't wait. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Could you, could you take a moment and tell us a little bit about um, the Monster Squad and other projects that you are working on right now? Yeah, so um, if you'll notice, I don't really mention Monster Squad a whole lot online um, because the project has kind of evolved mm-hmm. over the last few months. Um, I'm very proud of the first book that we did, um, but there's there's something else that's going to be coming about from that, um, and there's going to be more of it. And that's okay. it's it's hard to explain because I don't want to give it away because it's, I I know this is something that the publisher is going to want to put out themselves. Um, but I've basically, you know, I've continued doing interviews and stuff like that. And I think we're well over 60 now, um, in terms of different special effects artists. And I'm thinking there should probably be some news, uh, in terms of that. I want to say late summer, early fall, I have to deliver everything by June 30th, uh, which is why I'm sort of, staying off social media and stuff because I have mm-hmm. a, I've got about 20 chapters still to write um, and get approved because <laughs> I let everybody see their stuff before I print it um, mm-hmm. so there's that and then I'm also working on another project um, in conjunction with the 80s horror documentary um, that I am co-producing called In Search of Darkness um, we did two very successful campaigns the first one was to raise funds to make it and then the second one was sort of our pre-sale um, because we're not distributing it beyond direct to consumer um, because mm-hmm. we really wanted to make this for the fans. It wasn't about like, Oh, well, what, what deal can we get out of Netflix? What deal can we get out of shutter? We wanted to just bring it directly to the fans. Um, so I'm working on a project in conjunction with that. And then we are also gearing up for our science fiction documentary called in search of tomorrow, which uh, will be, I think we're going to be launching that later this summer, early fall as well. So lots of crazy stuff going on. Um, but I'm still over at Daily Day trying to do my best over there. And, you know, if you want to follow along with shenanigans, pretty much the only place to do that is over on Twitter um, mm-hmm. with uh, at the Horror Chick. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And you, you know, I know it sounds like you are trying to find a way to cram 30 hours into a 24 hour day, but we would love to have you back as we kind of cover more and more in different franchises, but we would always love to have you back on as a guest. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, hell yeah. Call me in for 
anything i except maybe hellraiser <laughs> the latest yeah. ones, i should say yeah hellraiser we will too i'm all about but yeah uh, once I we think get a little further gonna, down there yeah i think there's going to be some things we like struggle with like there's going to be some crickets out there trying to get uh people <laughs> on but i think one thing where we have actually a crazy amount of people that have already said they want to jump in on jerry tell tell everyone what we're doing next our next franchise that we are covering is Oh my God. I love it so much. It is Friday the 13th. Uh, and we just in the short time that we announced it, we've had so many people asked to be a part of it to where we have every single film has at least one or two guests. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone from, uh, AJ Bowen talking about Jason lives to the author of crystal Lake memories, wanting to talk about seven. Uh, we have the director of starfish doing Friday the 13th too. Like it is going to be so much fun. And if there's ever a series that I, you're going to have to shut me up pretty much nonstop about it's going to be Friday the 13th or Halloween. I am very much looking forward to like basically saying go and sitting back. I might do some dusting. I might like do a little, (laughs) you know, spring cleaning. I get to be quiet. No. And I loved, I, I, I really enjoy the Friday the 13th movies. I'm not going to say I love them. I love Halloween, but the Friday movies are so much fun. It's funny. I tried introducing my daughter to Friday the 13th part two, and she's like, Dad, like this is just a bunch of like teenagers getting drunk and having sex and then getting killed. I'm like, welcome to the entire series. I'm like, isn't it great? She's like, no, can I go do something else? (laughs) We like, can we watch a Nightmare on Elm Street again? Um, So like, that's the kind of kid my daughter is, which God love her. Um, It's funny. I was at, university last week and I was wearing my Camp Crystal Lake t-shirt and one of my professors is like got it and she loved it. We just started talking about the Friday the 13th movies. Um, I can't wait to do this. I think it's going to be we have so many fun guests lined up. Um, I think we're going to probably try to plan on live tweeting at least one of the movies for kind of a fun night to kind of promote the show a little bit. Um, But this to me is just, you know, it's daunting. It's going to be all 12 movies and then a wrap up of where we think the series is going to go next. Um, So, my God, it's it's a daunting task that's ahead of us. I'm excited. So where can we find us online right now? We are over at the at Twitter, at the pod and the pen, uh, pod and pendulum over at Twitter. We're at, uh, if you want to drop us an email, pod and pendulum at gmail.com. Um, as of right now, the show's not on iTunes. It's, we're just waiting for approval. But I think by the time you hear this, it better be up or something is seriously wrong. Um, the biggest thing you can do if you're listening, go ahead and leave us a review. Leave us a five-star review. It does help people find us, um, and we really want to grow this community. I think the thing I'm most excited about is having different people on um, every single episode and kind of like generating conversation. Um, so please, so please feel free to leave us a review, email us, let us know what you think, spread the word a little bit. Um, thank you, everyone, again for listening. Um, this I'm really glad we started with these movies. I fucking love the Scream movies. I'm actually a little bit sad to be done talking about them right now. I think when we're done with Friday the 13th, you're going to have basically a very nice audio companion uh, to watch and appreciate with all the movies. So we are looking forward to that. We'll see you guys or hear you guys. We'll do something in a week. I don't know at this point. I'm pretty much talked out. So thanks for listening and have a great night. <laughs>